Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In Georgia, we have now seen the enemy, and not to totally revisit Pogo, you know, the enemy is us, but the enemy is clearly the Republican Party. Yesterday, we saw the Republican Party's voter suppression strategy on full display as black areas in Georgia, and pretty much exclusively African-American neighborhoods in Georgia, were absolutely deprived of enough voting machines, enough polling places, uh, that their citizens could vote in a reasonable period of time. And now what I'm hearing as I'm watching the news, I, I heard this this morning on one of the networks. I read it in a, in a story in the, in the Washington Post. You've got the Republican officials in Georgia saying, oh, well, that was the fault of the local election people. They just didn't know how to run the machine, which, frankly, I think is uh, GOP slash racist code for those black people in those black, largely black precincts who are volunteering to help out, or they're just not smart enough to run the machines, or words to that effect. I mean, that, that seems to me like the subtext. That's, that's the only excuse they're making. This Washington Post piece is titled, In Georgia, Primary Day Snarled by Long Lines, Problems with Voting Machines, a Potential Preview of November by Amy Gardner. It starts out, problems were concentrated in Atlanta and surrounding counties. Now keep in mind, this is the number one strategy the Republican Party uses for voter suppression. Force people to stand in line for a long time. Works even better during a pandemic. But is there any mention of that in this article? Okay, back to the article. Problems were concentrated in Atlanta and surrounding counties where voters described standing in line for hours with election officials processing paper ballots by hand painfully slowly because they could not get new touchscreen machines to work or they had not been delivered on time. The chaos in Georgia offered another example of election troubles. This isn't a trouble. This is exactly what Brian Kemp wanted. Anyhow, back to this. The chaos in Georgia offered another example of election troubles as states adjust their procedures in response to the pandemic. The problems could, could foreshadow significant challenges in November at a time of deepening partisanship around voting, with President Trump and his GOP allies inaccurately attacking mail voting as prone to fraud. And then it goes on. You know, people are calling for investigations. People are complaining about standing in line for so long. A confluence of circumstances hit Georgia voters Tuesday. Many new poll workers brought on to replace those who had bowed out because of fears of the virus were unfamiliar with the new ballot marking devices that were deployed statewide for the first time, replacing a paperless electronic voting system that a federal judge had declared insecure. Well, if it's the fault of the local officials, why is this not happening in the white communities? Why is it that report after report after report is coming in from people saying, I live in Roswell, I live in Marietta. I live in, you know, fill in the blank, white communities in Georgia. No problem. I lived in Georgia for 13 years. I believe it was 13, either 11 or 13 years. Louise and I lived there with, a, you know, we raised our kids there. They, they all went to Georgia schools. I mean, you know, I, we started and built and sold off two different businesses during the years that we lived in, in Georgia, a, a travel business and an advertising business. When we lived in Marietta, it was a largely white, maybe 20% black or thereabouts, but a largely white town, Marietta, mostly. It certainly seemed that way to me. But it was more middle class, right? You know, kind of right, right in the middle. And then we moved to Roswell, which is north of Marietta, which is, uh, used to be actually an independent little town, 
which is pretty much all white or largely white. And in both cases, I never had to wait more than 15 minutes to vote ever. And I vote in every election. Never had to wait more than 15 minutes. And in every single one of those elections, you read the Atlanta Constitution Journal, you watch the local TV stations, and every single election, you saw these long, long lines in Atlanta, in black communities to vote. And why? Because the white racist power structure, the white, largely Republican racist power structure that controls at the statewide level, that controls Georgia, Brian Kemp being the most recent manifestation of that, doesn't want black people to vote. It's just that simple. This is voter suppression. And the media narrative needs to shift from, oh my God, we've got problems with voting machines or we've got untrained or inexperienced poll workers, which is clearly not the case. I mean, yes, of course, that's the case all over the place. But why, again, why is it that in white neighborhoods, it takes five minutes to vote in black neighborhoods, it takes six hours to vote? This is not an accident. We need to stop behaving like it's an accident. We need to stop describing it as an accident. Oh, who could have imagined? This is the system that the Republicans want. This is what they're betting on this fall. This is why they are, why they are fighting voting by mail, even though voting by mail is the most secure and safe and consistent way to vote. We've had vote by mail here in Oregon for over 20 years. No so-called voting fraud. None of it. And we have one of the highest, if not the highest, voter participation in the entire country because it's so easy. It's so straightforward. And yes, they're still comparing your signature. There's still biometric security. What's it going to take to stop Republicans from maintaining structural racism in our voting? By the way, you can see my op-ed about this over at buzzflash.com and commondreams.org. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Do you think Trump is going to let us vote? Or if we do vote, do you think our vote will be counted or will matter? A couple of other things I wanted to bring up and and it kind of set the table for conversation as well. First of all, just this is kind of falls into the category of interesting stuff. Donald Trump lives in such a bubble that when Fox News and CNN and all these other news agencies were reporting that he was 14 points down from Joe Biden, he hired this poll guy to evaluate the poll. And the guy said, well, you know, maybe there's some things wrong with this poll. And maybe this is an attempt to suppress the Donald Trump vote. People will figure there's no way he's going to win. And so they just won't show up to vote. Well, first of all, that's kind of weird logic because I think it actually works kind of the other way around. I I suspect that there's a lot of people, for example, in 2016, Mark Pocan talks about how, you know, in Wisconsin, 200,000 plus people who had voted for Barack Obama never showed up to vote for Hillary Clinton. He attributes that to her running a lackluster campaign. And there's no doubt that that happened. I would add, though, that the conventional wisdom across the news media was so strong that there was no way that Trump was going to win, that Clinton had this thing in the bag, that probably a lot of Clinton voters just said, "Bah, why bother? So anyhow, Trump's logic is completely wrong, but he's demanding, he is suing, he sent a cease and desist letter to Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, demanding an apology for attempting to suppress the vote of Trump voters by publishing a phony poll. Of course, it's not a phony poll. The Washington Post poll says the same thing. The Ipsos poll says the same thing. The, I mean, you know, all the polls basically say the same thing. That said, we are six months out or five months out from the election. And anything can happen in five months. Five months is forever in politics. Five months is five years in politics. You want to know the trends, the political trends? Wait until October. But even don't forget that. James Comey came out in the last week of October, a week before the election, four years ago, and said, oh, we're going to reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Boom! Shaved two points, point and a half, two points off uh, Hillary Clinton's three million vote margin of victory. So, anyhow, just FYI. Andy in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Andy, what's up? About this voting issue. I think I've heard Donald mm-hmm. Trump say that vote by mail is insecure. and so Right, although that's how he votes. Vote. Yeah, I'm sure you're not trying to say he's a hypocrite, but I will. <laughs> what would be more secure, where every ballot has a pro number on it, somebody's name, or the voting machines? 
When I vote here in Oregon, when I send my ballot back, it has my name on it. I mean, the, the actual ballot ballot doesn't, but the envelope does so that when they receive it, they know who, you know who it came from. Uh, it has my signature on it. And they have to compare my signature with my signature that's on file here in Oregon, you know, my driver's license signature, which is how I registered to vote here in Oregon. You, when you get your driver's license, you can check a little box. I don't recall if it's opt-in or opt-out. I'm pretty sure it's opt-out. You check the box if you don't want to be registered to vote, but I could be wrong. But in any case, they compare the signature and that's called biometric identification. It is easier to get a fake ID than it is to fake a signature. So, you know, this is a very secure system of voting. What Donald Trump objects to, Andy, is the principal ways that the Republican Party suppresses the vote of largely Democratic constituencies, people of color, students, people over 65. The principal way that they suppress those votes are, number one, reducing the number of polling places so that people, particularly people who are paid by the hour and don't get paid if they don't show up for work, so that people have to stand in line for four, five, six hours to vote, number one. Number two, putting into those polling places broken voting machines or a small number of them. So even if there's a lot of polling places, you still have to stand in line for five hours. That's voter suppression. Whenever you see a line that's going around the block, you're looking at voter suppression. Pure and simple, period, full stop, in a world without end, amen. Secondly, the second strategy that they use is removing people from the voting rolls, arguing that they're doing it because they think you moved out of state. And when you show up to vote and you're not on the rolls, they still give you a ballot. It's called a provisional ballot, and it doesn't get counted. It's up to the Secretary of State. And in red states, Republican-controlled states, they will only count those provisional ballots if there's a lawsuit. So people think they voted, but their vote never gets counted. Well, if you're in a vote-by-mail state, like I am here in Oregon, and I knew two months ago, or six, eight weeks ago, yeah, about two months ago, that the state had mailed out the ballots, and my ballot and Louise's ballot came in the mail. If they had not come in the mail... I would have known, hey, something's happened. I could call up the Secretary of State and say, what's going on? They could say, oh, we thought you'd moved. And I'd say, no, I'm still here. And so they'd send me a ballot. So the two most effective and successful ways to suppress the vote that have kept Republicans in office nationwide don't work with vote by mail. And that's why Trump opposes it, Andy. Hassan in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Hassan, what's up? I wanted to uh, just clarify something about the 12th Amendment. You've said a number of times that the state legislatures would be the ones that choose in the case of not enough of a majority in the Electoral College. What the amendment actually says is that it's the House of Representatives that does that. The problem is you still only get one vote per state. No, that's my point. And, 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 and by the way, this was clarified in 1876 was the, the Tilden Hayes election where the guy who lost the electoral vote and right. lost the majority vote um, became president, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. And so two years later in 1878, the 12th Amendment was modified slightly or clarified um, with a piece of legislation and I'm sorry, I can't remember it right off the top of my head. I wrote a long op-ed about it. this. If you put a 12th Amendment and my name into a search engine, it'll pop up. I published an op-ed about this maybe five months ago, and it goes into a yeah. real deep dive on all this. And, and the, with that modification, the way it works is each state has one vote, and that vote is not determined by their congressional delegation. Their congressional delegation votes that one vote, but you ha- but and you could even have a congressional delegation from a state that had a majority Democrats and a minority Republicans. But the vote is determined back in the state by the combined number of elected legislative officials. The governor has no say over this. So you combine the House of Representatives, the state House of Representatives and the state Senate, merge them all together. Everybody has one vote. And so you've got you've got states, you know, like Michigan, where you've got a Democratic governor, but you've got Republican control of the House and Senate. You've got some states where you've got Democratic control of the Senate, but Republican control of the House, which is many more people. And you may have a Democratic governor. They will vote for Trump. That's how it works, Hassan. Am I making sense? So, yeah, you're making sense. Tom, but can you uh, t- one question and one additional thing? To, uh, can you tell me what the cases that clarified that 12th Amendment? And then the other thing is that the 12th Amendment actually amended 
part of Article 2, Section 1, and that's where a different concern is, which was also in your article, that I'm more worried about, especially with the mail-in voting, uh, so to speak, controversy that the Republicans have created. You know, I, I'm worried that they're going to say in some state that ends up going for Joe Biden, but is controlled in the legislature, in the state legislature by Republicans, that they're going to say, oh, there was so much mess, fraud in the election, that we're just going to take it over and award our electors. To, I, I well, this is, this is what happened in the election of 1876. In the election of 1876, you had four states, Oregon and three southern states, where you had a, one group in the legislature who said the Republican won, one group in the legislature who said the Democrat won, and the governors in these four states were unable, unwilling, whatever, to say we know for sure which side won. And what was happening was that the three southern states were at that moment under occupation by Union forces. And so those governors... Um, you know, said, we can't certify this vote because our voters were intimidated by the Union soldiers. In Oregon, Oregon was basically at that point in time occupied by the Klan. And so the governor of Oregon said, I can't certify the vote. And between those four states or among those four states, there were enough electoral votes that you didn't hit that 50 percent plus one electoral vote necessary to elect the president. And that's why it got thrown to the House. Now, ultimately, the House worked out a compromise. They didn't, they, you know, it didn't ultimately play out the way I'm predicting it's going to play out this time. And that compromise was we will end Reconstruction in exchange for putting the Republican in office. Um, you know, because keep in mind, the Democrats back then were the Southern racists. You know, if we look at the election of 1876, it gets kind of complicated. But I don't think it's going to be that complicated this time, Hassan. The thing that I'm worried about is that they will just simply ignore the vote in the state and the legislature will award the electors. The wrong guy. That's a possibility too. That is absolutely a possibility. And, and I wouldn't put it past Wisconsin or Florida or Georgia or North Carolina or to ignore any or Michigan or any of or Arizona to go yep. against the will of their own people. Yeah, and the only reason that I can think of that these Republican senators are not speaking back to Donald Trump after they've won their primaries. And knowing that in their own states, speaking back to Donald Trump may actually get them some votes. The only reason that they're not talking back, with the exception of with Lisa Murkowski, is that they know that this thing is in the bag already. And that troubles me considerably. Hassan, thank you very much for the call. You know, I, I, somebody on Twitter earlier said, you think people in the streets are in the streets now? Wait till that happens. Right. And that's when Trump invokes martial law, because he's still president until January 20th. Ray in uh, Dixon County, Tennessee. Hey, Ray, it says you disagree with me about what? Yeah, Tom, I disagree about the uh, all million balloting. I think mm-hmm. looking at the issue of where Russia tried to interfere in the election, China tries to interfere in our elections, the mechanism that gives hands Russia and China the most opportunity to interfere and fraudulently change an election would be all mail-in balloting. Okay, so let me get this straight, Ray. If I've got, if you got electronic voting machines that the Russians can hack and and electronic tabulators that they did hack in Florida, we know in the last presidential election, I get that. I don't get, and and I know some idiot on Fox News said, oh yeah, the Russians will just print a whole bunch of ballots and mail them in as if they came from real voters. That was obviously said by somebody who has never done mail-in voting. I get a ballot from the state of Oregon. It's got my name on the envelope. When I mail it back, my name is on the outside of the envelope so that they know who I am and where it came from. And I have to sign that envelope and they compare my signature with the signature on file. Now, how are Russia and China going to fake that? Okay, they don't have to understand what happens in uh, ballot harvesting. If they could could put operatives into the ballot harvesting process. And if you harvest uh, uh, one ballot harvester... What the hell are you talking about, Ray? One ballot harvester can harvest 100 or more ballots. And they help, they, they, they go out to find people who aren't going to vote. You're talking about the Republican guy in North Carolina who went around and paid people five bucks for their ballots. And yeah, I mean, that happens. It happens very rarely. And that guy's in jail. Hold on. This Hold on. Is, you don't understand. You, know, you, don't, you don't understand. If, if a ballot harvester helps people 
process their ballots, fill out their ballots. He lets them fill out the ballot. If he doesn't like the way they ballot, he can trash those ballots. And they never That's a win. federal crime, Ray. It's a federal, it's a federal crime. crime. You go to prison for that. This is just like the in-person voting fraud BS that we get from the Republican Party. They want to suppress the vote. The principal instrument of voter suppression that the Republicans use is reducing the number of polling places and, and, and reducing the number of voting machines so that people in minority areas, older people, and college students have to stand in line for six, eight, ten hours, particularly people who are paid by the hour. With mail-in voting, that never happens. 22 years we have been voting exclusively by mail here in Oregon and in five other states it's done. There has never been a single, to the best of my knowledge, a single allegation of anything like what you're talking about. This is a fantasy that is made up by these hysterics over at Fox News and these Republicans who want to continue to suppress the vote by making it hard for young people, old people, and minorities to vote because those people tend to vote Democratic. It's just that simple, Ray. It's just that simple. You really should try mail-in voting. It's great. Ron in Seattle. Hey, Ron, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Well, Tom, I really hope that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren can lead this country away from the direction it's going now. But let's just say for a minute that Trump and his fascist friends are already on the road to disrupting the election. What can we do to, to stop that? Raise hell. And, and I don't mean riot. I mean, pointed out at every turn, we need to be pushing back strongly. And the media is just starting to do this now against the Republican efforts to prevent mail-in voting. The timelines, the, the, you know, the deadlines are coming up for any kind of changes in state laws or any kind of federal law that might allow for national mail-in voting. I got an email this morning from FreedomWorks, you know, the, the, the group that, uh, that the Koch brothers basically uh, kicked off and, and their little buddy, their, their buddies, their network um, that, that uh, created the Tea Party back in 2009. Today, the email was about how Nancy Pelosi is trying to create a national voter fraud scheme by offering everybody in the country mail-in voting. Fact of the matter is 24% of all the votes cast in the last election, you know, a couple of years ago, were mail-in votes. And you've got five states where it's exclusively mail-in voting. Here in, in Oregon, where I live, we've been doing it for 22 years. And there's never been an allegation of fraud anywhere. It's one of the most secure forms of voting, one of the most stable forms of voting. And, you know, it just has to be done right. I mean, uh, some states require you to have a notary signature or you have to have a letter from the doctor or you have to have a witness. And all, you know, all that stuff needs to be done away with. It's just very straightforward stuff. Um, but that's that's uh, you know I frankly I think Ron that's what we need to be doing is uh, you know we need to be promoting this. Thanks a lot for the call, Vince in San Jose. Hey Vince, what's up? Hi Tom, uh, long time no speak. I just wanted to call in. One of your callers recently just mentioned that uh, uh, something about the census, and you said you weren't even sure what was going on with it. I actually back in March applied for a job with the census to be a census taker, and they did offer uh -huh. me a job within about two or three days. <laughs> I got a phone call and an email saying that they were postponing everything because of the COVID-19 situation. About a week ago, I got a, another email and a couple of return calls that are letting me know that they are actually they're going to be restarting oh, it. Uh, I go in this weekend for my uh, fingerprinting and my uh, background check. Mm. But the training isn't going to start until August. So I think they're really going to wait it out even longer. And that's the yeah. training. I won't even be going, I won't even go out doing anything until probably late August, early September. Well, that's interesting. But that's okay, going to be starting here in California. Vince. It's going to be going back to work. Was this a federal agency or a state agency that contacted you? I believe it was state. I'm not entirely certain. Because the Census Bureau is a federal agency, but I don't know if they run the whole show or if they contract basically with the states and the states do it. Quite honestly, I haven't gotten that far in, into the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts. Who's going to fingerprint okay, you? I'm going where where are you going? I mean, I'm is it a state bad. agency or... No, I, <laughs> I'm going to an office depot to do my uh, fingerprinting and background training. Or background oh, uh, thing. So they're they're going to get so all they privatized an part of it. Depot. Fascinating. Yeah, part of it is. Vince, thanks for that. Thank you, thank you for educating me. It is, uh, it is such a privilege to be here with some of the smartest people on earth and the most well-informed. And I learned so much from all of my listeners. Vince, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Richard in San Jose. Hey, Richard, what's up? This is regarding the mail-in folks 
And am I correct mm-hmm. in that all of the votes, mail-in or otherwise, are still run through a, a voting machine, which is the die bolt, which is really a problem uh, that we're going They're to have. They're run through scanners. And they're just like uh, tests are in high school and college and probably elementary school nowadays. Are they still um, using the die bolt machine? machine? I don't know. Uh, it's it's really up to each individual state and whether they're buying their scanners from Diebold or whether they're buying them from somebody else, I don't know. What I've been saying for a long time and, and continue to push is that the scanners that are used for, for mail-in ballots and, and for, for many ballots, there are a lot of people who vote on paper these days across the United States, that those scanners should be owned by the government, not leased from these companies, and that the software that is run in those scanners should be open source. Anybody should be able to examine the source. Right now it's considered a trade secret. You know, the guy who does a really good job of talking about this in like super depth, you know, super wonky depth, is Brad Friedman. This show, The Bradcast, which is on KPFK in Los Angeles, and, and uh, it's a podcast you can get. Are you, yeah. are you related to Johan Hartman? No. No, I'm not. No. no. My grandfather and his uh, three brothers, when they left Norway, their last name was actually Sorensen, and uh, their okay. middle name was Hartmark, which was their mother's name, their mother's last name. And when they came through Ellis Island, none of them spoke English. And, and Uncle Tom, the oldest, was also drunk. He was an alcoholic. And he was in his early 20s. The rest of them were all teenagers. So the best we can figure out as a family is he got about as far as, uh, as the Hartmark part. And the officer, thinking he was speaking German, he was, you know, he, he was Norwegian, put it down as Hartman. So, you know, there you go. But I, so I, I have very few Hartman relatives outside of... My, my grandparents, uh, my dad had two sisters, but actually their last names are not Hartman. So, so basically it's, it's just us, myself, my three brothers and, and, our, and our families. But anyhow, Richard, <laughs> I, I need not go through my family history. Thanks for the call. Ron in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today? Trump's objection to mail-in voting. Doesn't he understand the United States military personnel stationed overseas have been voting by mail since, I think, World War II. We're talking millions and millions and millions of people have voted by mail from overseas bases, and there's never, ever been a problem. So where is he? 24% of all Americans who voted in the last presidential election voted by mail. Okay, but I'm it's, it's, this has been going on, as you, as you correctly say, Ron, it has been going on forever. It's, mail-in voting is probably as old as the republic. The the reason Republicans don't want mail-in voting is because one of the main strategies that they use for voter suppression is making you wait in line for hours and hours and hours by limiting the number of voting places or sending the broken or dysfunctional voting machines to polling places where there's a lot of Democrats. And they can't do that with mail-in voting. The second way that they suppress the vote is by removing people from the voting rolls. And if everybody knows that six weeks out from the election, they're going to get their ballot in the mail and their ballot never comes, they've got another five weeks to call the secretary of state and say, what the hell happened? Send me a damn ballot. And, uh, you know, the Republicans don't like that either. So the, the two principal techniques that they use for voter suppression both get defeated by mail-in voting and that's why trump and the republicans are all hysterical about it ron the evangelicals talk about the book of revelations all about the end of the world book of revelations has nothing to do with the end of the world book of revelations was written for the people of that time i have a book here in my hand it's called revelation god and satan in the apocalypse written by professor james callis which lays it out James, I mean, um, Revel, John Revelator is sitting in prison on the island of prisoner. He writes a letter out to his followers telling him the Emperor Domitian is a dirty rotten lousy, no good so-and-so. Yeah, he thought he was he was in prison on the Isle of Patmos or exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and he, he literally thought that was it and that the beast was the Roman Empire. You're absolutely right, at least from the histories that I've read. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And by the way, this whole theory of the rapture, that's only 200 years old. Gail in Seattle. Hey, Gail, what's on your mind today? We all know that voter ID is a powerful tool to guarantee voter suppression in this country. What states demand voter ID? 
Are there any important swing states amongst those states? And lastly, how can we get legitimate IDs to people before the general election? First two questions I don't know the answer to, Gail. I am guessing the League of Women Voters may have that information on their website, but I just, I'm not real sure. Public Citizen may also. They have a whole division that's dealing with voting issues. Stacey Abrams' organization, I'm not sure if they're specifically helping people get IDs. It would, it would surprise me if they weren't. They're engaged in legal challenges, by and large, against efforts to suppress the vote. I would check that out. You could easily uh, find it with a DuckDuckGo search on the internet as a starting point. So, Gail, thank you. I'm sorry I don't have the specific information you're asking for. But, you know, we'll, we'll get, I'm sure that it, we will get to that sort of thing as conversations about the election really start to pick up as we get closer to the election. Liz in Los Angeles. Hey, Liz, what's up? I want to talk about the terminology that the Democrats use. They're too honest, and they need to do what the Republicans are doing. Change the terminology. When we give tax breaks and subsidies to the wealthy, don't call it that. You call it welfare for the rich, because that's what it is. And and welfare has has such a um, demeaning tone to it now, you know, because of what the Republicans have done. Um, I worked in welfare when I first went to work for the county of L.A., and yes, I did make a lot of fraud referrals, but there were also a lot of women who needed that money because they were abandoned mm-hmm. by their husbands and they didn't pay child support, you know. And um, uh, so you change the terminology to welfare for the rich, you know, um, over over protection for the rich, whatever the, the current terminology should be. On the level of messaging, I completely agree with it. I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that because the Supreme Court in 1976 and 78 made it legal for first uh, billionaires and then secondly for corporations, respectively, to own politicians or even political parties, calling that free speech, First Amendment protected free speech, something that had never before been a doctrine in the United States and to this day is not a doctrine in any other major democratic republic in the world. Because of that, when it comes time to write bills, like for example, the legislation that we've seen, the $3 trillion worth of, of uh, support subsidies and, and, and whatnot to, to help people as a result of the COVID recession, um, that some 80% of the benefits went to a very small number of very wealthy corporations and, and billionaires. They got most of the benefit from the coronavirus bailout. Why? Because those laws were written by or modified by lobbyists for the industries and the very billionaires, including one special provision that specifically helped out the Trump family, Um, you know, the real estate guys. Uh, So, you know, we've got to get money out of politics, Liz. Yeah, yeah, we need to change the terminology. Instead of calling them just Mitch for the rich or uh, Moscow Mitch, call them uh, Mitch bought and sold by corporation x y and z you know and you can list the names i think it would take a little uh, more research but you know next to each of these people running we should list who they're bought and sold by you know i actually uh, wrote a book called rebooting the american dream and one of the chapters in it is called make them wear nascar patches where i was saying you know okay if we're going to have bought and paid for members of the house and senate uh require them to wear the logos of the uh, companies that own them on their clothes (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, just like the NASCAR drivers do. I mean, I, you know, I think we, we can. We, yeah. Go ahead. That's a yeah. very good yeah, idea. I, th- I think it should be done. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean- or, or at the very least, I mean, to be serious, I, I, I don't think you're going to get them to wear NASCAR patches. But to be serious, they should be required to list them on the homepage of their congressional website. Every member of Congress has a website. Liz, thank you for the call. In the House, they're name.house.gov. In the Senate, it's name.senate.gov. So desanders.senate.gov, pokan.house.gov. On that homepage, there should be a required box which lists their top 20 donors, be they uh, you know, billionaire individuals or be they corporations. Now, they'd probably figure out a way to game that system, too. But, you know, we got to get some transparency back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. 
accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Congressman Mark Pocan, he is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the uh, number one big cheese progressive in Washington, D.C., also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, his website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N, and you can tweet him at rep, as in representative, rep, Mark Pocan, Representative Pocan. Welcome back to the program. What's on your mind today? What are you looking at as you look out at the uh, at America? What pops to the top of your list? I used to spend 90% of my weeks on COVID-19. These days, uh, certainly we've had a shift with trying to deal with systemic racism and police violence. I think, you know, the important things to mention today, there's a hearing in the Judiciary Committee on the uh, policing bill introduced by the House Democrats. Uh, we also officially got word that we're going to be back in June 25th and 26th. Um, to take up those bills. So next week, the committee will actually vote on it. They had a hearing this week, and then the following week, we'll be in as a full Congress to take it up, along with some other bills. Uh, and um, we're still waiting for the Senate to come to the table to work with us on another COVID uh, bill, which is very, very unfortunate uh, because uh, our state and local governments are hurting. Our frontline workers need protections, and uh, many small businesses have run out or will be running out this week out of their PPP loans, and we don't have anything else in place, and certainly business hasn't come back for many of those businesses. So there's a lot on the plate. Uh, we're juggling a few issues, but we are going to be coming back in uh, to deal with them uh, and dealing on the 25th of June specifically on a policing bill. Policing is sort of at the top, not sort of, it's at the top of a lot of people's minds, <laughs> as well as uh, the uh, naked voter suppression we saw in Georgia yesterday. The, Georgia. the, the Republican parties, apparently not just Georgia, it happened in several other uh, Republican-controlled states as well. You know, the, the number one voter suppression technique or technology that Republicans have used for years is to force people particularly people of color, but also uh, uh, people in low-income white neighborhoods, uh, people where there's, uh, in neighborhoods where there's a large elderly population, basically, and college students, to stand in line for hours and hours and hours in order to vote. And now they're fighting uh, vote-by-mail aggressively. Uh, I, I, there was no story on today's, um, uh, on the app, on the New York Times about Georgia yesterday, but there was in the Washington Post. I read the entire story. It's titled, In Georgia, Primary Day Snarled by Long Lines, Etc., there was literally no mention of the fact that the vendor that they got for their voting machines was not the one recommended by their independent commission, but instead was one of Brian Kemp's biggest donors, number one. And number two, there was no mention of the fact that this is actually a Republican voter suppression strategy that they've been using for forever, frankly. Um, so between that and, and what's going on with policing, I'm curious your thoughts on those issues. 
you know, there are two issues I could talk each one about an hour, but let me say briefly, um, on voting, you know, this is uh, yet another example, Wisconsin was an example in April, uh, of why we need to get people to vote early or vote absentee even better um, so they don't have to deal with these issues. And we shouldn't have to be resorting to that. It should be that you can go and, and not have to wait a long time to be able to vote and have your voice heard. But unfortunately, these suppression tactics are part of the election tactics uh, of many Republicans. So we're going to have to really get the word out about uh, voting by absentee. On policing, you know, this bill by the House Democrats is a bill, uh, and it's pretty comprehensive uh, in many ways, um, but there's so much more that still has to happen. And largely, you know, police departments are run by uh, local governments, and that's where we have to really affect that change uh, even more so. So, uh, there's a lot of conversations we can have about it, but I, I think the good news, uh, and I always look for good news, Tom, is the polling really is showing people uh, across the country have woken up to this, and uh, you really are an, a, a serious single-digit outlier if you don't think uh, it's it's hard to be uh, a black American and have to have interaction with the police, and, and I think that's good. So we may finally be able to resolve some of these issues. My sense of it is that the Me Too movement, we noticed in the rearview mirror. I mean, you know, when the Harvey Weinstein stuff came out and, and uh, Ronan Farrow's uh, article was published, which kind of blew open the door, it wasn't until maybe six months or a year later when people were looking back going, that was the turning point, and America will never be the same again. Sexual harassment in the workplace and all, you know, a whole spectrum of forms of sexual violence uh, will just simply not be tolerated any longer, including even joking about it. I think this is a similar turning point. I don't think that we'll be able to look back and see all the specific examples and people who lost their jobs and, you know, things like that over it and around it, um, you know, probably for six months or a year in retrospect. Same with me, too. Um, I'm curious your, your take on that. Yeah, in fact, Tom, I, I would even argue I see a little more intensity right now because we're actually moving legislation in Congress, and we haven't had a yeah. bill around reading in police for a very long time. I think the last uh, bill, uh, also Ayanna Presley has a resolution condemning police violence. I think the last one uh, that was before Congress was, I believe it was 1999 by Danny Davis. So, you know, this is long overdue stuff going back to the 60s, but uh, I really feel uh, that we're watching legislatures move, local governments move, and Congress moving, and that's what we really needed to do and hadn't for way too long. Dee in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, gentlemen, and thank you so much for wonderful work and great information. Congressman, we just heard about Georgia. Mm -hmm. What have we got of good news that will counter the voter suppression coming up for the big election? We need help. People don't like this answer, and I guarantee I'll see some tweet replies to this, but elections have consequences. And with Mitch McConnell in the Senate, Donald Trump in the White House, we're not going to get the things done that we would like to at the federal level. So we need to act the local and state levels where we can to get uh, better protections in place. Uh, we need to fight to make sure that things like H.R. 1, the very first bill we passed out of the Congress, and other bills become law and reality when uh, we have a different president to put in place. And in the meantime, we have to convince people uh, that uh, if they want to have their voices heard, they're going to have to request absentee ballots and vote early and do things other than wait until Election Day, especially in the era of COVID-19. Um, my state in Wisconsin, we saw what a disaster that April election was. But fortunately, 71 percent of the people decided to vote absentee and over 80 percent of the people who requested a ballot actually filled it out. So it's a good way we can still get the vote out. We just have to vote a little bit differently, like we're doing many things things differently under COVID-19, and you have to work with the candidates you support, and, and if it's the, the Democratic Party or, or whoever, whatever entity that you work with that's helping to get those um, absentee requests in and get those votes done, that's what's going to be key looking at November. So you're thinking that for those states like Texas, where you literally have to have a doctor's slip in order to request an absentee ballot, basically there's nothing that can be done at the federal level because of Mitch McConnell in the Senate. We've tried, right? We've passed bills. They're yeah. sitting at Mitch McConnell's desk. Lawsuits will take too long HR to get done, likely by November. Yeah, H.R. 1, your first piece of legislation addressed this yeah. problem. As and, and others. And we took out just the pieces that elected, you know, just uh, relating to November and did pass those as well. They're all sitting at Mitch McConnell's desk. But 
people can still early vote. Uh, we have to organize people around that. Uh, we're going to try to have a standard in a bill coming up. What we, ideally, it would be vote by mail. But again, I don't think Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are going to allow that. Therefore, we're going to try uh, no excuse absentee, but many states do have that. But we've got to get it so that people can vote, even when they're facing all of this suppression, uh, especially in Republican states. That just means we have to redouble our efforts and find innovative ways to get people to do what will get them a ballot so that they can vote. And then if we vote out the people who are doing the suppression, uh, then we've got to hold accountable uh, the people that won to make sure they get rid of the suppression. Amen. Lisa in Puyallup, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. You know, you pass all these bills, you know, progressive forms of bills, and they just sit in Mitch McConnell's desk. And it seems to me uh, nothing's going to pass. The only way we're going to get anywhere is through the election. So why doesn't the Congress, the House, focus, and the Democrats, focus on just getting out the vote? I mean, that is really productive. It seems just passing bills to the House to have only go to the Senate and die, nothing's going to happen. So why even... Why even do anything? It's just refocus, throw in the towel on passing bills and just get the voter out. And you guys just spread out and back every all the other candidates out there, local and uh, national and all that kind of thing. I think that you're wasting it, your time let's by go, doing these let's bills. Let's get, get a response. I think we're doing both. One, we are doing everything to get the vote out. We're working with our, our local parties. We're working with candidates. We're working with um, uh, folks to make sure that that's happening. But also, sometimes by passing legislation, you show people the contrast between the parties and what they could have and what they're not getting right now because of Republican obstructionism. So uh, whether it be uh, things like uh, equality for the LGBT community, uh, ending police violence uh, for folks that have all too long uh, been been systematically uh, treated with discrimination. No matter what bills we pass, we're helping set the case for, look, this is the alternative, what you get, why it matters to come out to vote. And uh, so I think you can do both quite easily, and we need to do both. Mick in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I, I presented this to you both before the coronavirus pandemic began to become an issue. There were still people doing the normal routine. I was told it was a premature question. I asked to you both again, let's have a discussion about a vice president because, as you know, both uh, people that are currently uh, in the government are of age to where the virus could uh, put them uh, uh, in a different place. And uh, we're not talking about the political stance of the women that currently could be chosen. I think it's important, especially in lieu of the police violence. Could you uh, address this and a little more thoroughly this time than the last time we talked? Sure, Nick. Um, so, you know, I know that right now uh, Vice President Biden's team are, are calling people like myself and, and seeking advice. Um, and, and, you know, the advice, uh, I think, can be looked at in a couple different ways. One, we know it's going to be uh, a woman who's chosen, and that's good. Um, the next question is, who is that person going to be? Are they going to be looking at uh, things like uh, age differences? Are they going to be looking at things like political differences? Are they going to be looking at things like racial differences in order to put us in the best position to win in November, but also the best position to have someone who can be the president should, as you mentioned, something happen to uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, for that matter, on the Republican side? I have talked extensively with uh, you know the, the search team. I do think politics matters, uh, especially, you know, Joe Biden, we know, is is more moderate. And I think it's important that, uh, you know, we keep um, someone who's more progressive in views uh, also on the ticket, because I think that helps make sure we keep our base uh, coming out. And uh, but someone also who's uh, competent and able to uh, lead uh, the country at, in the way we need to right now. So um, there's a, a number of names that you've seen that are out there. I'm not sure exactly what direction they're looking at, but I I hope they look at an all of the above strategy includes ideology because I think that's a very important factor that uh, often isn't looked at. Do you have any sense of when Joe Biden is going to make a choice? 
No, I don't. Part of the, the confusion is even the convention, right? The convention's moved. We're not sure what the convention's going to be. Um, this is the earliest we've had a nominee in place uh, for a very, very long time. So even that, you know, I think by June we were first getting uh, state directors in many states, including Wisconsin, uh, swing state. So I think, you know, I, they haven't given us any direct indication, and I don't know if they have a real game plan on when to release that. When was the uh, convention supposed to be, and is it going to be held still virtually now from Milwaukee? We don't know yet. It might be a mix, I think, of some sort. It was supposed to be July, now it's going to be August, and uh, I think uh, we're still on a whole pattern to figure out. Fascinating stuff. I am very concerned that by August we're going to have the second wave of virus here between the reopenings and the protests and everything else. It's very concerning. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Gary, in Detroit, Michigan, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman. We're at a point where we're facing probably the greatest economic crisis that we've had since the Great Depression. And with this monumental crisis, and we can see it uh, in the streets in part because I think we would not have the outpouring and the, uh, the protests that we have if things were not so generally bad for people, especially millennials. I'm wondering when things really get bad, what the Progressive Caucus is going to actually do if the majority of the Democratic Caucus does not actually stand up for things that are more significant, like Medicare for all, like debt forgiveness. I mean, I've been, I've been a progressive for decades. I've watched so many people just to sell out. And I've seen people be co-opted. And to be frank, I don't have a great deal of faith that that's not going to end up happening yet again. And the problem is, if this crisis is not addressed in a progressive way, it's likely to be addressed in a reactionary way, in a fascist way. So you guys need to act boldly. First of all, you know, I, I wish... My only problem were other Democrats. Uh, the problem we have is we have Mitch McConnell in the Senate who won't even come to the table to do another coronavirus bill when we've passed a bill that has $3 trillion worth of assistance going out. Um, and we have a president in the White House who, uh, as you, uh, I think, rightfully said, is starting to act like a fascist. You know, uh, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in a flag and carrying the cross. Instead, he's carrying a, a Bible after a, a fake photo op uh, after gassing peaceful protesters. So those are real uh, entities that we have to fight. So I, I know sometimes people get mad because if you're a Democrat, we expect more of people. But I, I don't think right now my problem are fellow Democrats because we had a pretty decent bill that just came out um, that got uh, virtually all the progressives votes um, on the HEROES Act. My problem is getting Mitch McConnell to the table to do much of anything, getting a president in place that won't just veto legislation we pass. And, and the main way we take care of that is by being ready for November. And, um, you know, I, I certainly hear you. There are certainly times that we fight uh, aggressively within our caucus to get uh, the better ideas done. But right now, that's not ultimately our problem. It's the White House and the Senate that are stopping something as simple as the HEROES Act, which we supported um, very strongly. Martina in Madison, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. How do we get Ron Johnson out of the Senate? Yeah. He's your uh, Republican <laughs> senator you, from Martina. Wisconsin. So, yeah, Martina's from my district in Madison. Um, and, you know, Ron Johnson's been one of those voices that um, uh, pretends he doesn't see the president's tweets when they're outrageous and bad and has quite honestly done his own outrageous and bad tweets uh, as a U.S. senator. And, you know, we would have did that in 2016. Russ Feingold would have came back had it not been for 200 to 250,000 Dem 
uh, voters stayed home because they weren't inspired by the campaign uh, that was run by the Democratic nominee in 2016. Uh, people didn't fall for it and vote for Donald Trump. Very few did. It just, they stayed home. And unfortunately, um, that cost us uh, getting the ability to defeat Ron Johnson. So, you know, I think whether it's Ron Johnson or it's any of these senators from Colorado, um, Iowa, other states that are swing states right now, uh, even Mitch McConnell himself, I think we can beat. We have some momentum. We have wind on our backs right now uh, because of how the president has handled pretty much everything, but specifically COVID-19, how he's handling the the protests right now. Um, He's completely out of sync with American voters and Republicans aren't standing up to him. So I think we just need to continue the fight we're doing, stand up for what's right, stand up against the Republicans who just uh, are complete lackeys and sycophants for for Donald Trump. And if they're going to drink the Kool-Aid and be a cult member, then they're going to pay a price uh, electorally. And for someone who's up in 2022, we just start organizing now to get rid of those folks as well, like Ron Johnson. So I I hear your concern, Martina. I think we've got a good chance to pick up the Senate this year. And I think uh, the Senate and and any Republican who's silent to Donald Trump is going to pay a price. Is Ron Johnson up for re-election this year? No, he is up in 2022. So in two more years, we oh. have no Senate or uh, governor seats up in Wisconsin this fall. Oh, that's interesting. And who's your other senator? For, uh, forgive my, <laughs> my um, memory. Someone who should be on every short list as a VP of possibility, Tammy Baldwin. Tammy oh, Baldwin, the outstanding right. progressive in the U.S. Senate, won Wisconsin by 11 points when other statewide folks won by one point. A political force. Yeah, she's good. She's really good. Jim in Salisbury, North Carolina. Jim, you are on the air. Has to do with H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act. I'm one of those that have knocked on doors, canvassed communities, made phone calls. And we finally got the act there. We've got a piece of paper with an act. Yet the leadership of the House, and I'm not sure if it's a leadership, no one's held a vote, regardless of what the Senate would do, to show us that knocked and canvassed that you're serious and just at least hold a full vote for Medicare for All Act. Thank you very much. Yeah, Jim, so a, a couple observations. First of all, you know, it is interesting how public opinion can move very quickly, especially on something like Medicare for All. Um, we were doing very well in the polls in the 60s, uh, in most polls, uh, percent support. Then during the presidential primaries, uh, as people try to differentiate themselves, uh, it went down. And there were some, I think, mis- moves that happened during the, that primary that affected the popular support. And then as soon as COVID happened, we watched the support just leap back uh, up uh, strongly in support of it. Um, part of that is we have to have that sustained, sustained support so we can have more people who are co-sponsors because if you're going to put a bill for vote, you want it to pass. And we have, I believe, 120-something sponsors. I could be wrong with the number. I haven't looked at it uh, recently. But we need to build more support for it. The public support is there, but we need those folks to call their elected officials to put the pressure on them. So, um, again, I think, you know, we, we know that this is something that we need in this country. We're the only industrialized country that doesn't have universal health care uh, for its people. Uh, this is, I think, the best way. That's why I'm a strong supporter of Medicare for All. But we just got to keep that support up. But putting a bill, bill on the floor that may not have the votes, I don't think is the best approach to help uh, to continue to build the momentum that we need to build, um, but getting more people to co-sponsor to get to a magic number where you have that 218 votes you need in Congress uh, is really what's key. Richard in Pasadena, California, listening on KPFK, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, yeah, Mark, last uh, week a lady, uh, Karen Caller, uh, was afraid, saying she's afraid of what Trump might do between now and January 20th, and so I'm saying, yeah, let's get a referendum vote and get this nation away from Trump before November. But anyhow, the other thing is, my question to you is, do you know about what uh, James Madison said about this militarization with the police? It was all about... What we've become today is exactly what he was arguing against. Yeah, well, I I can tell you that we've had 
votes going back since I've been in Congress, and there likely was before that, um, to try to stop this practice of having us just give military equipment to that we're not using anymore to police stations because it doesn't provide any of the training. And you really don't need military equipment in many cases for local police departments. So I, I think that is a part of the bill that we're putting forward as the Democrats. Um, but also, you know, I think look at a lot of other issues. Uh, mental health is, is, I think, a classic example. I was uh, the ranking Democrat on the Corrections Committee in the Wisconsin legislature when Scott Walker, before he was governor, was the chair of that committee. And I can tell you um, all too often, uh, you know, how we've dealt with uh, so many of these uh, criminal justice issues around mental illness that it's become incarceration rather than um, health care uh, for dealing with mental illness. And what would make more sense than to be redirecting those efforts to actually dealing with people who are mentally ill with, me- with people who are medical professionals as opposed to police officers? And there's a lot of things like that that I think we can reimagine how these um, relationships happen and who is the best person to provide some of the services. So uh, I agree with you completely. The militarization of of police officers doesn't make any sense. Um, But I also think there's a really an opportunity to use this to lift how we provide the services we provide and find the best people to do them. And it may not be who's currently providing those services. Jordan, we have 45 seconds. Can you ask your question very, very quickly, please? Do you believe voting is a tangible example of white privilege? Because as an African-American, I can't think of anything we have done that we should not have the same rights to voting. And have you ever decided to try to encourage your uh, colleagues to present voting as a white privilege issue and that we need to include everybody to do this? Yeah, Jordan, I'll tell you, I, I think what's interesting is, you know, we still refer to the right to vote. And uh, thanks to Bush v. Gore, um, it's proven there is not an actual right to vote in the Constitution. We talk about discrimination in voting. That's why I've had a constitutional amendment to try to make it a right. And um, I hear the music. But, uh, Tom, thanks uh, again for the week. We enjoy it so much. Sure. Th- uh, thank you, Congressman, for being with us. Uh, it's always great talking with you. Congressman Mark Pocan, 2nd District of Wisconsin, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.